recent results on antibodies lower my and I think most people's beliefs of what the immunity level is now. And this is surprising. Hi, this is Eric Bagley in the Rocket FM studios in Stockholm, Sweden. Time now for episode 15 of Corona Crisis, Once Upon a Pandemic. I'm joined on the phone line by Mark Vandenbosch. Mark, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing great on this uh, nice sunny morning here in Stockholm. Okay, we're recording this on uh, Friday morning, the 22nd of May. And the interview that I conducted two days ago, almost exactly 48 hours ago on the morning of uh, Monday, the 20th of May, was with Tom Britton, professor of mathematical statistics from Stockholm University. He's really kind of the numbers guru in Sweden whenever there's any modeling or data issue uh, associated with the coronavirus crisis. We're thrilled to have him on this show, Mark, uh, today uh, as our guest, our expert guest. As I said, the interview was conducted on the morning of the 20th. And later that day, the uh, Swedish Public Health Agency published uh, new data. So uh, we don't really talk about that data in particular, although some of the same themes. And that is uh, herd immunity and the levels of uh, herd immunity that uh, we are perhaps reaching here in Stockholm and in Sweden in general and other countries too. And it seems that it's a lot less than previously expected. We uh, heard uh, uh, some weeks ago that the herd immunity levels in Stockholm by now would be 50% or so of the population of uh, Stockholm, but uh, it seems like it's far less than that. This latest report, as I mentioned, Tom couldn't comment on it because it was not published yet, but it looks like about 7.3% here in Sweden has uh, been exposed to the uh, coronavirus, much less than expected, which means we're probably quite a bit further away from herd immunity at this point. Correct. If that, of course, is an accurate figure, it's a little bit hard to tell because there's uh, evidence that some tests present a positive outcome and another test presents a negative outcome on the same patient. So when you use a figure of 7.3%, which is extremely specific, it has to be taken with a bit of grain of salt. And this seems to be echoed in other countries as well that have even lower numbers. I saw that Denmark publish a study with uh, only about 1% of the population uh, having some immunity to the virus. Which actually, in the case of Denmark, makes sense since they did institute a fairly restricted lockdown. But I think even more alarming is some of the figures that have come out of Spain, I believe, where the numbers are also extremely low in the single digits in a country where there's been a very high mortality rate. And speaking of mortality rates, Mark, here in Sweden, the uh, the level last week was actually the highest per capita in the world, according to uh, one uh, reading of this of this statistics, something that Trump in the United States uh, actually retweeted. So it seems uh, that was kind of a gratuitous slight or, uh, or backhand towards Sweden to uh, kind of uh, make the American response look a little better in a comparative light. Which is sort of odd because Trump seems to be a Sweden bashing quite a bit over the last few weeks. But at the same time, he's sort of laundered Sweden for its response and it seems to be somewhat envious and something that he might want to do in the United States. So it's sort of a double message. It's hard to read. All right, so Mark, why don't you give us some news from around the world, your so-called 360. Around the world. Well, we spoke a little while ago about the reopening of uh, sport venues in uh, sort of controlled fashion, oftentimes with uh, empty stadiums. We talked about baseball, Taiwan and Korea. The football league in South Korea is also now up and running. And one of the local clubs got a lot of criticism because in order to spice things up, the clubs have been putting cardboard cutouts of fans in the stadiums and piping in music and trying to make it lively. But this particular South Korean football team went a step further and actually populated the stands with sex dolls. <laughs> which, okay. 
<laughs> which sex sells, seen, right? Yeah, I guess so. But it was seen by some as somewhat inappropriate. And the club had to go out with a big public apology. Here we are talking about it in Sweden, so I guess it did have the the publicity impact that they were looking for. Yes, indeed. The, the, the news is reverberating throughout the world. So that's one thing that's going on. Another thing that's happening uh, in terms of interesting measures that are being taken to liven things up, but also sometimes in the spirit of solidarity. In San Francisco, for example, there's a homeless problem as there is in many other large capitals across the world. And in order to help the homeless, but at the same time sort of control the social distancing aspect of their existence, the city has designated areas, parks and parking lots and things like that, for the homeless to actually pitch their tents. And they've helped them to do so by demarking on the grounds and with tape the areas where the tents should be placed. But this is creating an uproar among the population in San Francisco because they didn't really plan when they bought their million-dollar apartments to have a bunch of homeless living outside their windows. And it's also creating a problems of a sanitary nature, for example. There's no infrastructure to deal with this. And it shows, again, that it's uh, difficult. That we want to be solidaristic, help each other out in these troubled times. But at the end of the day, uh, we also <laughs> expect our lives to be as, uh, as undisturbed as possible. And our concern for our fellow man sometimes is, is not as well. You know, I'm not a, I'm not a big fan generally of the term uh, NIMBY, but this certainly seems to be an example of, uh, of NIMBYism in this particular context. And as you mentioned there, Mark, about being concerned for your fellow man, this, this also brings to mind this uh, fantastic song by uh, Bruce Springsteen, "We Take Care of Our Own." which uh, was written about 10 years ago uh, and, and uh, I think was in response to a certain extent to the uh, Hurricane Katrina and other disasters where there wasn't as much uh, solidarity as uh, one would have hoped. You had some other examples, no, Mark, of uh, populations having to be sort of uh, gathered together in close quarters that maybe uh, lead to uh, some suboptimal uh, situations. Oh, absolutely. I mean, one of the more densely areas of the world, as we all know, is Bangladesh and parts of India. And their numbers in terms of corona is, is increasing very rapidly. And there's been some very drastic measures taken there as well to try to stop the spread of the disease. However, Mother Nature is not helping right now. It's hurricane or cyclone season, as they call it in that part of the world. And a major cyclone has actually made landfall over the last couple of days in Bangladesh and India and destroyed a lot of areas. And that has uh, generated a need to create refugee areas, if you will, for people who have had their homes destroyed. And these refugee areas consist primarily of huge tents. So now what you have is thousands of people in very, very heavy concentration trying to just survive day to day after a natural disaster. And now as we move into the Atlantic hurricane season on June 1st, uh, that's going to be much more of an issue in uh, in that part of the world as well, from the eastern seaboard of the United States to the Caribbean as well. Yeah, there's a lot of island nations that are quite poor, and uh, I think that uh, is, is something to be monitored over time, absolutely. Before we move on to the interview with uh, Professor Tom Britton, Mark, I uh, just want to encourage listeners to uh, leave reviews, give us ratings on iTunes or wherever it is you get your podcast, and uh, please spread the word to others about this uh, podcast, Corona Crisis, Once Upon a Pandemic, with me and uh, Mark Vanden Bosch. Broadcast here in Stockholm, which is still getting a lot of international attention uh, because of the uh, the outlier response of this country. And that's something that we talk a bit about uh, now with Tom Britton, professor of mathematical statistics at Stockholm University, kind of the, the guru, the go-to guy of data aspects of this crisis here in Sweden. So, Professor Britton, you've recently co-authored an article for the journal uh, Quantitative Biology in which you estimate that herd immunity can be reached when 40 to 45 percent of the population is infected with COVID-19 substantially lower than the classical estimate of 60%. Can you please explain the basis of this new estimate and what implications it has for the current situation in Sweden? 
Yeah, so this is a new result uh, discovered by us and independently by a group in uh, Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine, Gabriela Gomez and co-authors. So it's a very simple result. So in that sense, a little surprising that no one had realized it, but I guess it comes from the fact that this is the first time that we reduce the reproduction number by means of preventive measures on a global scale. I think this is the first time this has ever happened, so the question has not arised earlier. I guess that is the main reason why it has not been observed earlier. But uh, the explanation is rather basic. It is well known what herd immunity is for vaccination, because when you vaccinate, you typically you do this uniformly in the community, so, for example, if uh, let's say that R0 is equal to 3, then it is well known that the vaccination, the necessary vaccination coverage is two-thirds because if you, before vaccination, infect on average three people, then two-thirds has to be immunized uh, because then only one-third is susceptible. So with that vaccination in place, you will uh, infect one or less if the vaccination coverage is uh, above two-thirds. So that's well known, but that is for vaccination where immunity is distributed uniformly in the community. But what is the situation when immunity is um, uh, distributed from a, a disease outbreak? Well, then it is not distributed uniformly. People that are more socially active are more likely to get infected and less socially active are uh, less likely to get infected. So in a sense, immunity is distributed in a more efficient way in terms of reducing spread because if most of the highly social people get infected, then the remaining ones will be slightly less socially active and that will hence... Uh, the potential for future spread more than if immunity was distributed uniformly. Of course, this distribution of, uh, of infection here in Sweden is a, is a big, uh, as it is in many countries, a big question mark exactly how, uh, how much uh, infection has been uh, taking place in Stockholm and in Sweden in general. Uh, one study that uh, recently came about that um, seems like it, it was a somewhat uh, concerning was this one in Spain that estimated that uh, only about 5% of the population in Spain had been infected, more in, in urban centers like Madrid, around 11% from what I understand. Now, has this actually altered your thinking? I mean, because you've put out some numbers before about what you estimated the infection rate in Stockholm has been. Is, is this study in Spain and perhaps also this uh, recent study from the Karolinska Hospital that uh, made an estimate that around 15% of the working population in Stockholm had been affected, has this affected how you think about what the infection rate is in Stockholm and Sweden at this point? Uh, yeah, so, I mean, the result that uh, I just uh, mentioned earlier, that is where the level of herd immunity occurs. So that is lower than previously anticipated because before that, people thought of the vaccination-induced herd immunity level. But now we are we should be thinking of the disease-induced herd immunity level. So that is lower. But what you're talking about now is what is the current immunity level, which is, of course, a different thing. And I agree that recent results on antibodies, lower my and I think most people's beliefs of what the immunity level is now. And this is surprising. I've been talking to some medical people, so it seems like more and more people, or I don't know, but one hypothesis is that not everyone 
in particular the mild and asymptomatic ones, they might not develop antibodies, at least not at high enough concentration to be detected by these tests. So that could be an explanation to why so few people have um, antibodies compared to what most people would have thought. Or, of course, it could be that I and uh, the Swedish Public Health Agency have uh, overestimated the fraction getting infected. But what we estimated was the fraction that had been infected. We have not estimated the fraction that have antibodies. So if there is a substantial fraction of people infected not having antibodies, then both the Spanish investigation could be true and the estimate of the public health agency could be true. And how would that uh, affect the, the idea of herd immunity, as you mentioned? Yeah, you now- yeah. So, uh, yeah, I guess so. it depends on... Uh, so it, it could either be that we're, all countries are much farther away to herd immunity. I guess, uh, in a sense, that before the herd immunity threshold was believed to be, like, let's say, 60%, and now new results say that it probably more like 40%. But at the same time, we thought earlier that the current situation, at least in Stockholm region, was close to 30 or around 30%. But now uh, new results indicate that it is rather half of that or something like that. So both levels have been reduced. But um, one thing that has been uh, raised, I hear, from uh, the medical community, uh, I'm not specialist in this, but that is the mild and asymptomatic cases, suppose that they don't develop at least detectable fraction of antibodies. Some people I've heard, some medical people I've heard, think that they still are, they are very, it's very unlikely that they would get uh, infected again. At least it's very unlikely that they would be infected again with um, severe symptoms. Even if you don't detect antibodies, if you were mildly infected earlier, some people hypothesize that, okay, maybe you can get infected again, but at least it's very unlikely that you will get severe symptoms on the second round if, uh, if you had mild symptoms the first time. And the other, the other um, set of numbers that caught a lot of attention is uh, some of the estimates you've made on the total amounts of uh, deaths that can be expected here in Sweden over time. Recently, uh, your estimates uh, about a week ago uh, from, I don't know if it's the latest estimates you have, but between 6,000 and 14,000 people in Sweden will eventually die of COVID-19. And this is proportionally quite a bit higher than our current total, which is around 4,000, just under 4,000. I mean, how should an alarming estimate like this inform policy decisions here in Sweden? And is there a direct trade-off between lives lost, which is obviously a public bad, and reaching herd immunity, which can be understood as a public good? Yeah, well, first of all, my I said between six and 14,000. It's not a scientifically-based estimate. It's a back-of-the-envelope calculation. So it's nothing I've published anything on. So there's a lot of uncertainty in that. In that estimate, there is clearly a trade-off between closing down society and saving lives. I think all countries are facing this challenge and countries have reacted somewhat differently. I mean, all countries have uh, inserted some preventive measures. Sweden probably has inserted less preventive measures than most countries, at least most countries here in Europe. And it is hard to say if if it was good or not. I think uh, closing school was a good thing, uh, probably 
a few li- additional lives have been caused by this. But on the other hand, I think closing school for three months for uh, one million children, I think that is all. Uh, it would have been one million children in Sweden. That's also a rather strong preventive measures, which I think will have consequences for a long time in the future. But maybe we should have uh, inserted social distancing uh, earlier and more severely by perhaps uh, closing restaurants and cafeterias. That, that is, I don't know, and I'm not a politician or work at the public health agency to decide this. But I, I, I do support that schools have remained open in Sweden. Obviously, in terms of the trade-offs, right? I mean, can, can we reach... A herd immunity without sacrificing so many lives in general is that is there is there a direct correlation there well of course uh, i don't know if countries are aiming for herd immunity but of course immunity is good that is a good thing but maybe i don't think many countries perhaps are aiming for it but it's a sort of a, a consequence of people getting infected that's very bad but a somewhat positive uh, side product is that immunity is built up And uh, there is ways of building up more immunity without suffering too many uh, lives, and that would be to protect uh, the elderly and the weak or the, the, um, the risk groups. And I think all countries are aiming for this, but of course it's very hard, in particular if you get transmission circulating at a high level in the society, then it's very, very hard to actually be successful in protecting the elderly. But most countries aim for this at least. In that sense, you could, in principle, you could obtain high levels of immunity without too many case fatalities if you manage to protect the the elderly and the risk groups because the risk of dying for young and healthy people is very, very low. I mean, one thing that Sweden has not done much of, uh, one of the the other ways that Sweden has stood out somewhat internationally, is in terms of testing. Not a lot of uh, testing of the public has uh, been done here in Sweden. Has this created any sort of uh, gaps in, in data? I mean, you work with data and modeling. Yeah, right? I think that. Uh, yeah, I think that's uh, that is a weakness that we have tested too little. I mean, we should test uh, people. Work. I mean, of course, patients coming in being sick, they should be tested. Also, people working in important areas like hospitals and the people working with in elderly homes, they should be tested rather frequently. I think that is very important, and I think we might have we have probably failed in Sweden there. But a different type of testing that I uh, that I would have liked to have seen much more is where you test sort of a randomly selected group, a randomly collected sample. Uh, sort of a representative sample to get an impression of the current situation in different areas of Stockholm. So that's a slightly different purpose of testing. And I think both purposes would have been good. And the later would have been good because then we get a better understanding of uh, the current situation. Of course, there's been a great deal of international interest in how Sweden has been managing this crisis. And as you mentioned, uh, Professor Britton, it, um, it, is, it stood out. It's an outlier in terms of how, uh, how Sweden's approached this. Is, this. is the effectiveness of the Swedish strategy something that can be evaluated through statistical analysis, your area of expertise? And if so, I mean, how would you compare the outcomes so far in Sweden versus other countries statistically and mathematically and modeling-wise? Well, I haven't done any serious analysis on this, but clearly we have had more case fatalities than our neighboring countries. I have looked a little bit about the initial phase of the epidemic, which reflects uh, the situation before uh, preventive measures were put on. And then 
it seemed like Sweden and Denmark had approximately the same uh, uh, growth rate, but then they locked down and we did only like a partial and voluntary lockdown. And uh, the effect of that is that more people have died in Sweden. The growth rate was slower already from start in Norway and Finland. So I think, and they have much fewer deaths per million people. So for Finland and Norway, I think it's two reasons why they have fewer deaths than Sweden. Uh, one is that they had lockdown, but also even without lockdown, I think they would have had fewer. So it's a combination. Whereas for Denmark, it seemed like we had the same initial growth rate. So we have uh, um, suffered in terms of case fatalities. And then I saw some statistics on uh, consumption, sort of quantifying the effect on society. And I saw that now I sort of forgot the numbers, but I think the consumption had dropped by 30% in Sweden and by 60 to 70% in the other Nordic countries. So, uh, which sort of reflects how the how society works. So we we had smaller change, still big, but uh, somewhat smaller change in how society functions and higher death rates up until now. And then uh, we don't know about the future. If the Nordic countries managed to avoid a strong second wave, you might say that they have been more successful in their preventive measures. Whereas they do get the second wave, then I guess Sweden might could claim that our strategy was more successful. But up until now, we have had uh, more deaths, but our society has been functioning a bit better. So um, I don't know what, what to value higher. I mean, models, I guess, are meant to inform decision-making by the political leaders. So certainly your work uh, is very important in that sense. But, but if in terms of, we're talking now about valuing and comparing perhaps uh, the, the medical impacts, the, the deaths, the illnesses and such, versus some of the societal impacts. And I think there's been some modeling. I think the Wharton School of Business in the United States has done some, we put in the same model, right? We put like the, the, the medical outcomes and you put some of the, the societal, economic impacts. Is that something that's being done in perhaps one model or comparing models here in Sweden to inform decision makers on on what to do in terms of taking different measures? I haven't seen any such models, but on the other hand, I there's a lot of literature produced now, and I focus mainly on the modeling disease spreading since that's my speciality. So it doesn't mean that there doesn't exist, but I, I haven't heard about uh, any models sort of comparing or sort of putting into one framework both um, societal costs and uh, costs in terms of uh, case fatalities and severe symptoms. I haven't seen any sort of joint analysis of that, but maybe there exists, but I haven't seen it. Okay, Professor Britton, just a couple of more questions if you have the time. Um, Anders Tegnell and uh, one of his predecessors, uh, Johan uh, Gisica, has um, made statements basically, I'm paraphrasing here, but basically saying uh, at the end of the day, most countries will end up in the same situation in terms of whatever measures are taken. That uh, if you look some months or some years down the line, the infection rates, the death rates will be roughly similar. Is this something that you see any signal in in your modeling or in your data that this actually might be true, that uh, no matter what we do, this this disease, this virus has, uh, has a sort of a logic and a trajectory of its own? Or are these measures that we take actually affecting the, the long-term uh, outcomes? Uh, well, uh, I haven't analyzed it in detail, but from sort of some type of knowledge of uh, disease modeling, I, I could say that if we go back so if we go back to normality, meaning exactly the way we behaved earlier, 
then I think Johan Giesek is correct. However, I think uh, we will not go back to normality. We will go back to something which we will call the new normality. Uh, I mean, eventually, of course, all shops will open and stuff like that. But my belief is that we will keep some preventive measures on for several years. So shops will open, restaurants will open, but I think there will be some voluntary, mainly voluntarily differences in our behavior in the sense that we will not stand close to people as we did earlier. And we will uh, definitely not cough in public. Uh, if you do, if you cough in public nowadays, I think you you should be scared of being um, hit by someone or something. So we will change our behavior, and in that sense, we will reduce the potential of disease spreading. And that is clear to me. I don't know the magnitude of this change, but if we manage to sort of have a new normality where we still live close to normal lives but still uh, behave better in terms of uh, preventing disease spread, then uh, Johan Giesek could be wrong in the sense that then much fewer people will get infected. Okay, one final question, Professor Britton. Of course, as we've talked about here, there's, there's still very much that we don't know about the virus itself, the, the medical, the epidemiological aspects of this uh, virus. In terms of the data that you work with, um, what are the biggest unknowns at this point that might have a significant influence on your models in the trajectory of the coronavirus in Sweden? What sort of statistical or the data modeling aspects of this of this virus that are the, the greatest and most important unknowns? And what have we learned over these three or so months that we've been managing this crisis? I think we have learned quite a lot. I mean, I, before this, I had seen some papers on uh, effects of closing schools, but they were very hypothetical. And I think most people thought that this will never happen. So why even model it? Whereas now, People like me and others, in particular others, are modeling and trying to estimate what is the effect of different preventive measures. I think we are learning from that quite a bit. So that is a good thing. Another thing which has struck me and which I'm currently working a little bit on is that this notion of R0, the basic reproduction number, it is well known that the basic reproduction number depends both on the virus or the infectious agent but also on the society in the sense that a country which is much more densely populated will have a larger reproduction number than a country with a less densely populated community. And it seems to me that this variation in values of uh, R0 is bigger than I had initially thought. So I think uh, it could vary. I think, for instance, in Sweden, R0 might be around two, whereas in Italy, it might be around three or even four. So there is a bigger difference between different societies. I think that is one thing that I have learned. And for an R0 or for the, the, for the spread to start to wind down, the R0 needs to be under one. Is that correct? Yes. So, I mean, yes. So if, if R0 is very different in different countries, that means that the the herd immunity level will be very different in the different countries. If R0 is 3, the traditional R0 was uh, 60%, but maybe now, due to the results I mentioned earlier, it might be 40%. But on the other hand, if R0 is 2, the traditional herd immunity level was 50%, but maybe then it is uh, taking these uh, heterogeneities into account, it might be just above 30%. 
So different values of R0 makes the herd immunity level also different between different countries. And I think that is uh, an interesting observation. And the R0 can change over time, right, depending on the spread of the disease in the community and the, and the measures taken by the, uh, by the public as well, right? Well, yeah, but um, R0, uh, at least the way I use R, uh, when you say R0, uh, then it is uh, the reproduction number before immunity and before preventive measures. Whereas if you measure it over time, I and most other people call that the effective reproduction number. So it is RE or sometimes RT indicating the time. The time. So I meant that before preventive measures, the reproduction number is quite different in different countries. And that is a, a lesson that I have done. Okay, well, Professor Tom Britton, thank you very much for joining us here on the podcast. We really learned a lot from your, your deep knowledge on the, the modeling and the data surrounding COVID-19. Thank you.